you know, the contents of your life are that you're silent on issues of human suffering. We have an issue, you know, we have a problem. But now uh, we've kind of shrunken our our experience to this, like, this, this public theater, this social media theater that theater is the best word I have for it, where we're expected to, to perform our, our pain, perform our opinions flawlessly and with great speed, <laughs> or else we, who, who are we? You know, it's, yeah, skepticism and accusation all around, I guess. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hells, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. It's great to have your company on the show today. This is the show where we speak to a different Christian each and every week and find out more about their life, faith and testimony. My guest on the show today is Cole Arthur Riley. She is a writer and the creator of Black Liturgies, a space that integrates spiritual practice with black emotion, black literature and the black body. And Black Liturgies is a project of the Centre for Dignity and Contemplation, where Cole serves as curator. Her debut book, This Here Flesh, received a rare five out of five review in Premier Christianity magazine. And I'm delighted to say that Cole joins me right now. Cole, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. And um, I want to start by talking about Black Liturgies, which I mentioned in the introduction there. As I understand it, it started life as a, as a social media uh, Instagram account, and you started with nothing, and it went from nothing to a hundred thousand followers in a matter of months. So, just tell me a little bit about what it is and and why it's resonated so much with so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it um, it did happen very quickly. Um, I began it in I think the su- it was the summer of 2020, and I think it was a really just unique crucible. Um, I mean, especially in America, but around the world, you know, people were um, grappling with the um, the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain and, you know, these Black people who had been killed at the hands of police officers. Um, and so I think it was a, a time where people were, uh, Christians specifically, spiritual people, or maybe looking around in... Um, the spaces they were in and, and thinking, okay, maybe I'm not as safe as I thought I was um, in these Christian spaces because, you know, um, and also it was, you know, uh, election season here <laughs> in the U.S. So we had a very, um, yeah, just kind of toxic, uh, racially um, charged election season here. And so I, in, I didn't realize this at the time, but I think in hindsight, it was just such, I, I can understand why, you know, Black liturgies spoke to so many people, because I think there was a hunger for kind of compassion and safety, almost like a harbor of, you know, where can I go where I can express um, my lament, my my anger, my joy, and and in the context of my blackness and my um, and my faith, and so yeah, I started sharing you know poems and prayers and connecting them to black writers that I love and who have formed me, and it's taken off thankfully. It certainly has. It's taken off and it's led to all sorts of opportunities for you. And we'll come on and talk a little bit about that in some more detail. Before we do, we like to go back to the beginning here on the show, hear about a person's 
uh, early life growing up? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I was raised by my father and later on in life, my my stepmother. But um, early, early years where it was just my father and his two little girls and he's a fairly young dad. had kids when he was in his teenage years and um, had the support of my grandmother, his mother and his siblings. But yeah, I was really quiet child. (laughs) I wasn't incredibly verbal. I talk about that somewhat in the book, Um, really just kind of reserved. But my family, I come from a really just like energetic, lively, you know, um, loud, a very loud family. And so from the time I was really little, I felt this, you know, the, the presence of joy around me and like the laughter of my, my family, the support of my, you know, my father's family. But I also experienced it as a kind of alienation, something that maybe I didn't I didn't feel like I could access in a way because I didn't have that, you know, that charisma, that that extroversion. And so, yeah, as a little girl, I think I was, um, you know, early days trying to make sense of who I was and specifically who I was in relationship to the people that I loved. And was it a Christian upbringing? Um, you know, not no <laughs> not pers- not really i would say so um my my father and my stepmother even they aren't you know religious people aren't I, they wouldn't identify as christians um so we didn't grow up going to church or praying or you know reading the bible or things like that but i will say um my grandmother my father's mother was raised in a very religious family for better and worse. She had a actually um, pretty traumatic experience in the context of, you know, Christianity. She was raised in a Seventh Adventist home that was um, incredibly abusive. And so she kind of had this divergence, this, um, she kind of escaped really um, from the Christian spaces that she knew. And she talks about even this anger at God, but that that anger tethering her to a God in kind of inexplicable ways, almost if that emotion wasn't present, she probably would have been capable of, you know, completely relinquishing any kind of faith identity. But it, the, the, her anger at God kind of kept her tethered to the divine in a way that made it that maybe she wasn't taking her kids to church, but, you know, she was singing songs and, you know, even to this day, I'll hear a song and I'll think how like a a Christian song, a hymn or something. And I'll think, how could I possibly know this? (laughs) Like, you know, like, and I think, Oh, it's probably, you know, that's probably because my, my grandma would sing it or hum it. And so all that to say, um, it wasn't overtly Christian, but I think it had threads and a kind of grounding in some, you know, Christian experience, but it was definitely a spiritual home. And, and by that, I mean, like, we were taught to ask questions about, like, what is mystic, what's supernatural, what, what doesn't immediately seem clear by, you know, what's visible around us. And so in that way, I think I was formed spiritually, if not in the Christian traditions. So what came next in terms of your spiritual journey? 
as you say, there's kind of hints of that from your grandparents, perhaps not, not so much from your parents in terms of a kind of traditional understanding of Christianity, if I can put it that way. But what was the next turning point for you where, um, where there was some kind of encounter with, with God or with the Christian faith? Yeah, so um, in high school, really, I was taking a particular English course that, you know, took me deep into existentialism, as most of us do in our high school years. Um, anyways, it, it, it um, was a, a class that brought up a lot of questions around, you know, what is truth? Is, or is, is it possible to know what is true? Is it possible to have any sense of you know, um, an absolute or original truth. And you know, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'll say I was very interested by that. I was um, like energized by those kind of philosophical conversations. I don't really think the answers were coming to me <laughs> in the way that I wanted them to. And I still don't think they ever did. But I, I, I started reading books about the 12 major world religions out of that. And, you know, it was back when people still visited libraries. <laughs> so I would take out these books and I think I was so desperate. I was a very, um, I was, I, I, I was living very much so in my mind still at that point, um, exclusively in my mind, usually not speaking these thoughts out loud. And so I think I thought I would find some peace in this grand intellectual pursuit of like, what is truth? And that that would give me some sense of security. And maybe I even feigned that for a while of like, yeah, I feel secure because I've found what's right. Um, but, you know, slowly that it was clear that that was like a mask I was kind of wearing to placate my own uncomfort, my own discomfort with mystery and the unknown and all of that. But all that to say, that experience, that kind of intellectual um, pursuit <laughs> for however much of it it contained a charade, it also led me to church spaces. I went to college and I had a friend who was like, you know, I think like Christian, I think if you're Christian, you're supposed to go to church or something. And um, I was like, okay, I think I might like be interested in that. And so we did no research we went to like the most obvious church on our college campus. It's just like the church in the middle of the campus with like big red doors. And we went, it happened to be a Presbyterian church. And that's the first time I um, was really kind of trained or educated in a, like what people would consider an Orthodox Christian understanding. Yeah. You, you must have been an evangelist dream. Uh, a, a young person, a young person walking around saying, I'm just on a search for absolute truth. I want to know what's real. Uh, you must have attracted all the evangelists to say, here's my neat and tidy five point answer for you, Cole. Yes. Um, it's so funny that you say that because, yeah, I definitely think there is some of that of like um, people who just you know, I can be honest that my intellectual pursuit in high school was propped up by ego and like insecurity, but you know, in, high, in college I didn't. And I don't even know if I was aware of it. And so to other people, they're like, wow, what a remarkable story. And now in my 32 year old self and understanding of the things that drive me, I'm like, no, it wasn't all that remarkable. It was just, that's what I needed to do. Like everyone has their paths um, anyways. But yes, I attracted a lot of people who were quite excited and, you know, energized at the thought of 
an atheist you know, on a search and willing to sit through lots of lots of church and Sunday school lessons. It sounds like quite a, um, in some sense, it's quite an intellectual journey to faith in terms of, as I say, you know, existentialism and, and wanting to know what, what the truth is. And it sounds like you're quite deliberate about trying to find answers. It sounds like, you know, you were someone at that point, it was very engaged with their mind and thinking and rationality and, and finding the truth in, in that way. Is, is that fair to say? And, and, it, and is that true of you now um, when it comes to faith and, and having a faith that is that is based on evidence and thinking and thought? Yeah, um, I think that's definitely fair to say that that's what it was grounded on. And um, I think I because I was not very verbal, um, I mean, early, earlier, it's not very verbal at all. But even in high school, I was just so shy. I didn't really speak to many people at all. Um, and so I was already kind of prone to living in my mind. And when I went to college, I, you know, this kind of desire to impress white male intellectuals and academia, I think was stimulated and it, and it touched a part of my soul that felt alienated before. I mean, if we want to go back to originally that feeling of alienation in my family at times, um, it, it, it touched that sensitivity to think, oh, like this could make me special. You know, I could be respected in the fact that I'm contained to my mind later on in life and toward the end of college and really after college, um, four or so years after college, I realized just the path that had taken me down ultimately into living an incredibly disembodied life and an, an insincere life in terms of how I was making my, like, how I was examining my lived experience and these daily decisions I was making. Um, and I became very ill. Um, I talk about this in the book. I became sick um, when I was 26 and it uh, hasn't quite let up since. And I think that was this eye-opening season of life where I realized I'd been living um, so disconnected from my physical self. And I would talk about, you know, the um, the physical and the spiritual being one and, you know, the the, the sacred and, and, and secular divide not being real. I, I would have these rhetorics that I would say, but in terms of how I was living, they were completely separate. And um, in fact, I was actively suppressing the other and suppressing the things like wonder and mystery and all of that because, the most important thing I think uh, was knowing, and you know that certainty doesn't do a lot of good for for mystery. You know, so it it took time for me to undo some of that like toxic intellectualism. You know, I obviously I still love to read. I am who I am, but at the end of the day, I, I um, am making a conscious effort to to stay in my body, remain in my body as I try to connect with God and understand God through the sensory as well and through mysticism as well. Yeah. You're saying you were sort of so caught up in your head uh, that it had a, a detrimental physical effect on, on your physical body, your physical health? Who knows? That's a mystery of why I have all of the, you know, the diseases and the disorders that I do. It's a, it's a bit of a mystery, but I think had I been in a habit of connecting with my physical self as much as I was in the habit of connecting with my interior world, you know, I would have done something about 
the neurological symptoms, you know, my eyes, which we now know are um, um, degenerating and not doing well. Like I would have done something about these things sooner had I been someone who was a little more in tune instead of, you know, numbing the physical. So I, I, I do think that, I mean, I don't blame myself. I think there are all kinds of things in this world that make us disembodied and especially as a black woman like it, it, to, to tune to your body to attune to the physical there's a lot of um a lot of risk and a lot of yeah a lot of baggage that comes with that so I don't blame myself but I do I have a lot of curiosity about how I would have cared for myself better when I needed that the most yeah and how has that been to, to process emotionally with you know quite significant illness still very young has that has that been a difficult one emotionally and even to process in terms of faith and god and you know what's going on here i i spoke to someone recently very different situation but but her story was that she had been raised to believe effectively that god owed her because she was a good christian girl and she ended up being arrested and charged and convicted of a crime which to this day says she didn't do but but what was amazing about her story was that she lived with this theology of rescue is coming god's on my side everything's going to be okay and it was this incredible unlearning of a kind of worldview she'd been taught to understand actually there aren't guarantees in life that i'm going to be well or everything's going to go according to i mean are, are those the sorts of things you face in terms of illness and health and thinking god what's going on here i'm in my 30s and I've got some I've got some illnesses here that that it's life seems so unfair I suppose is, is that something you've wrestled with you know I think that um it makes so much sense what that person experienced I um have sadly been a pessimist I've been a cynic since you know my family says <laughs> you came out of the root the womb a cynic and so you've had you've um, had the opposite problem thinking oh I just <laughs> I just deserve all this <laughs> yeah this is uh this is exactly you know um no I, I'm I'm kidding a bit but uh, I, I've, I've never been a, a person prone to a lot of hope or positive thinking. And, um, but I will say the things that illness has brought out in me is time with myself, especially if it's an illness that limits you. And, you know, I spent over a year where I was pretty much just in bed and, um, thankfully that's not the case anymore, but even to this day, my, um, illness, my disability, frankly, requires that I sit in bed and I can't use my eyes all the time. So I just will have, you know, a lot more time with my own thoughts where I'm awake. Um, and I can't do the things that I would ordinarily do, like reading or, you know, watching a movie or things like that. So you go places in your, you go places in yourself. I'll say that I'm sure everyone goes there eventually when they, you know, think about mortality, consider their own mortality. But um, because of, yeah, the, the life I've lived, it's just sped up a bit where, you know, I've um, had to think about, you know, become honest about what I'm most afraid of. And I'm not afraid of going blind. I'm afraid of being obsolete. You know, I'm a, I'm afraid of being unneeded or I'm afraid of um, being unwanted. Like you, you, there's a, a speed, I think people who have any kind of disability or chronic illness, I think there's a speed at which you kind of peel back the truth that you're telling yourself that maybe it escalates a bit. <laughs> um, and I think that happened to me where, you know, I don't want to, 
act like I'm the most self-aware, most self-honest person, but I think there's a kind of self-honesty that I've accessed (laughs) for better or worse because of that time with myself and time to consider my own mortality. Yeah. And if, if it's not been a case of, um, you know, faith having an influence in terms of creating loads of, of hope or kind of expectation that God's going to heal you. If it's not been that, then how, how has faith influenced the way you've thought about all this and dealt with all this on a practical day-to-day level? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think about, I mean, it's complicated because so much of my work hinges on black dignity and, and I, and so you become so used to talking about black dignity that you almost feel like you're betraying something when you start to become honest about your smallness. And it's smallness, it's probably not the best word, it's probably not the most precise word, but I think if there's something my faith has given me, it's the sense that I'm not as special as I think I am. Actually, I'm one small part of a very expansive universe and that doesn't make my life any less beautiful, but it does require me to on occasion decenter myself by what's going on in in me and think and listen and listen to the the birds you know next to the barn swallows next to my house or you know or or just watch the lake or you know stare at architecture it requires me to kind of understand that I that something's not revolving around me I guess and that's been really I mean in a weird way been really good to consider my own smallness, my own impermanence, um, and to learn to be okay with that. I think it changes how you live. Yeah. Coming back to your story, take me back to college and what were your hopes kind of career-wise and, um, you know, what was the plan and, and were you able to walk that plan in any way or, or did the health problems start around that time and, and things would turn out quite differently? Um, you know, I, I've, I've wanted to be a writer since I was little, but just didn't really like have an imagination for that, like a, a, a realistic imagination for that. I studied uh, writing and I switched actually, I was studying physics for three years and I switched and at the last moment I could, um, because I thought maybe I could do, if I couldn't write books, maybe I could, you know, do freelance writing or something. And I ended up working instead in campus ministry work for seven years or something like that. And kind of um, before black liturgies had probably kind of given up on the idea that I would, I would write in the way that, I mean, I was writing, but not in the way that I had once thought. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly privileged. It's like no small thing to be able to to write a book and now to be able to write more books I feel you know beyond grateful that it's led me here still this summer it's all about three get three months summer subscription to premier christianity the uk's leading christian magazine three months of unlimited daily opinions and articles online three printed magazines delivered directly to your door three digital magazines on your device so you can read on the go and all for just five pounds 
That's right, just £5 for a three-month subscription only at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. It's, it's one of those, isn't it, that so many people aspire to, uh, especially a book, so many people would, would love to do that, and I, I suppose very few get to. So um, is, are there still those sorts of pinch-yourself moments you think, oh, wow, there's actually a, a book has been released with my name on? Yes, I mean... Even yesterday, I walked past my dining room table and I just did a double take. We have a a few copies sitting on our table. And I, you know, you have these just these moments or like these waves of you created something that, you know, you're proud of. And now I'm I'm writing again. And I, um, yeah, I just think how how lucky there are so many people. I think about my grandmother who, you know, she had all the talent in the world. She was a writer, but never got to kind of live into that calling or sense of calling in her life. And I think about the people who are just so good probably at what they do and just don't have the the platform or the structures in place to, you know, to, to do it. And so, yeah, definitely a lot of pinch me moments the past year. Yeah. You've, you've mentioned this a few times already. It's just, you know, come up in, in conversation and so much of your, your work is is based around your identity as, as a black woman and how that affects everything and it's such it's such a huge question I don't even know where to begin or how to frame it but but just help us understand that aspect you know my your, your skin color being a huge part of of your identity of your work um, I, I suppose if your calling as well comes across in, in your writing and when you speak that you sent there's this I think you use the phrase black dignity this sense of calling to say you know this aspect of my identity has not been treated um, with the respect it, it deserves. And, mm-hmm. and I sense in you this sense of calling to, ch- to want to be part of changing that, I suppose. Is that, is that a fair reflection to get us going? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I absolutely. I mean, I, I'm lucky to have been raised by, in the presence of, you know, black women, by black women, my grandma, my, my, um, my aunt, and um, and my father, who, you know, they began our story about ourselves, you know, at this at dignity, you know, they didn't wait to talk about the beauty of blackness until um, that reality was, you know, challenged or put in question. They didn't wait until our first racist experience to start to affirm the beauty of black skin. That starting point uh, has meant the world to me so that my dignity feels like a homecoming as opposed to like a, you know, this new, you know, this new destiny or something. There have been so many seasons in my life where I've let my own race or my race has been this, um, a burden, <laughs> a burden. And uh, it's felt like a curse and to rework that story and to, to reclaim a story that's grounded in beauty and, you know, the wonder of my own selfhood. It takes me also, if we want to talk about the physical self again and not being this disembodied creature, it almost, it reunites me with my physical self because part of that rejection and part of that, the rejection of my physical self and the disembodiment and the detachment from my physical self, no small part of that is a detachment from my own blackness, you know, from my own skin. And yeah, I've, I've had to, 
really tell, you know, remind myself if I'm not in my body, someone else is. And as a black woman, and whether that's capitalism or whatever you want to, however you want to take that. But as a black woman, I, I'm at unique risk, I feel, to have my body used or just, or um, perceived in any particular way. So I need to have that original perception and that original grounding, if that makes sense. And yeah, I think so much joy comes out of it as well and um, company and belonging and all of that. So I'm interested there in, in what, what you're saying about needing to, to recognize uh, or being taught from a young age, your skin color is a beautiful thing and you're, and and not waiting, as you say, your parents or your grandparents, not waiting until you had a racist experience to talk about it, but actually from a very early age, say you are, you are beautiful. God created you this way. And this is something to be celebrated because I, I think, you know, for myself as a white person hearing that, it, it makes me think because of course this, this is one of many areas where you and I will have completely opposite experiences in the world because presumably because I live in a country where most people are white, Issues of race do not affect me. I do not think about them. I'm not conscious of them in the same way you would be because you're a minority. Now, I know that sounds like a very basic point, but I think it's, it's worth saying for some people. So well, that's strange. I, as a white person, don't remember having conversations about race because it was just sort of accepted. Well, because we're the majority, it doesn't affect us in the same way. And we and it strikes me how you can have two people living in the same town or the same village or the same city with completely different ideas on something so fundamentally human that we all share, we're all human beings, but actually because of our upbringing, because of the color of our skin, we can have wildly different experiences. Yeah, it's, it's true. And I think even, um, you know, I have, I've had siblings that didn't live with me. They grew up with my biological mom in, um, in spaces where there weren't a lot of white people. Now my, my sister and I, we were raised in, we went to a particular school that, you know, it was mixed, it was relatively diverse. And so I think even the conversations my parents were having with me were probably distinct from the conversations, you know, my biological mom was having with my other siblings because of, like you said, you know, um, proximity, who you're in proximity to, and the kinds of questions little kids ask, even if you don't have um, any overt racism happening, you know, if you're one of three black bodies in a classroom as a child, anything that makes you distinct as children, we experience that as a negative, we experience that as a form of alienation. Um, and so, yeah, I think, yeah, it, it differs, I'm sure, for for many different for many different households and depending on who you're in proximity to. Suppose it's that thing, especially as a kid and as a teenager, of just wanting to fit in, isn't it? It's like I just I don't want to be different for any reason. I don't want to stand out. I think that seems to be what a young what a lot of young people experience and go through. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's interesting. I there's an event here in London which is an all night prayer meeting. And um, it's in this probably London's, I think it's London's biggest indoor arena. It's huge. And I, and I went along and I was, I mean, I don't know how many thousands, we're talking tens of thousands of people there. And I was probably one of about three white people in the room. And it was an, it was a fascinating experience because of course it was one of very, very few times in my whole life I've been a minority in the room. And it, and it did something to me. It made me think, and it actually it gave me a sense of, okay, I now have a, just a tiny bit more understanding of what other people in this country go through who it's not once in their whole life in rooms minority it's actually every day they're a minority mm. and, I, and i wonder what that does can you can you speak to that in terms of again what a white person might just take for granted and go back to their daily life areas where where it has it's been more complicated than that or more difficult than that 
Yeah, I mean, there's this, even once you have an understanding of your own dignity and beauty as a Black person, I think there's this awareness, this hyper-awareness, and out of that, a hyper-vigilance around your own body and how you're perceived in a room. And systemic, you know, issues, of course, systemic racism has no, you know, no small part in this as well of, okay, how can I, um, how can I shrink my body? How can I seem unintimidating? How can I make sure I'm not, don't appear as angry? And, you know, all of these, you know, kind of classic um, Black American stereotypes, um, even if no one else is thinking them, you're, um, not all, not all of us, you know, not all Black people, but many of us have been conditioned in a way that you're constantly aware and being vigilant about, okay, am I affirming any of the things that someone might suspect of me that I don't want to, you know, affirm? And so I think it really, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it can create a really terrible relationship to oneself where- Like you're second guessing everything you do. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah, talk about it. Anxiety, (laughs) that kind of, you know, low-grade latent anxiety that probably is in the bodies of so many um, people of color or Black people because they're constantly trying to think, what did I, did I just say something that would be perceived as this? And I think any group that has, um, you know, uh, significant stereotypes, like, uh, wielded against them probably have some, a similar experience with that of so much of their lived experiences is can be trying to affirm or deny those expectations. And I think, you know, as we get older, ideally our growth, our journey would be to not worry about affirming or denying, but to exist in, you know, your true self, to be really acquainted, to really know who you are to do that, but to really know who you are, what your interior life is about, what your physical self is about, and to not, you know, bend and duck and dive constantly. It's just no way to live. Yeah. I think you've you've probably you've spoken to this question a lot already in what we what we've said already, what you've said already. But I did want to ask you, and I'm sure you've had the question before, with black liturgies, which is social media posts, as I understand it, you know, Christian content for for those who are black and and has a has an odd has an has a black audience. You must have had this question before of but Carl, why? Why can't we all just be as one? Why can't it just be liturgies for black and white people? Aren't you dividing us? I'm sure you've had that question before. How do you how do you deal with that kind of objection to this idea that you're creating liturgy just for one um one group of people, one one race? Yeah. I would say, you know, to that I would say it's not all that different than what Thomas Cranmer did. When, I mean, I'm no Thomas Cranmer, but like to, to, when I know what was happening to people who look like me when Thomas Cranmer wrote the Book of Common Prayer. I know what was happening in the world at that, at that time um, to my ancestors, you know. And, you know, there's something against the Book of Common Prayer. Um, I, I, I find so much of it beautiful and it drew me into... Um, Episcopal in Episcopal spaces after college and but at the same time I can recognize that there are places um, in the human experience that Thomas Cranmer refused to go and you know and I don't know him so I don't know why that is you know? 
I can, I can make my guesses. It's probably not helpful, but you know, there are places in, in the scope of the human experience that Thomas Kramer didn't go with the book of, of common prayer. So it's common to who, you know, it's the prayers of the people, but which people, you know, and, and, and so that's not to say that, um, I can't delight in the, you know, the confessions that Thomas Kramer wrote, but it is to ask the question of, okay, um, the Sunday after, let's say, um, the Sunday after George Floyd was murdered, does my prayer of the people sound the same as the prayers of the people that was read by the the lovely, you know, <laughs> the lovely white woman in my church that day? Did my prayers of the people sound anything like what she read? No, it just didn't. Um, and that's fine. Her prayer was beautiful, but it wasn't for me. And I think, you know, when people are threatened um, by another person's spiritual experience, it probably, in my, I think it probably speaks to a spiritual insecurity in themselves and a guilt in themselves, um, you know, or a just self-centered, I mean, just a self-centeredness, frankly, of if this isn't for me, <laughs> Then how, then how could it be good or, or true yeah. or beautiful? If it's not mine, if I can't own this, then how could it possibly be, you know, truly beautiful? And I think we just need to let go, let go of some of that ego. Um, yeah. And, and, is, and by the same token, what, you, what you've just said, would you also apply that to a, I guess, a kind of defense for why you might have a, a white majority church and a black majority church? Because there are those who say, hey, we're one people, we should have, multicultural churches in multicultural places but i understand based on what you've just said you could make an argument for well actually no if you've got a group of in this case black people who are suffering to a, a huge degree after something like george floyd then th there does need to be a space where that can be affirmed and where prayers will sound very different and so is that a kind of could that be used I'm, i guess what i'm asking for a defense for having churches that are black majority and white or white majority and kind of being unashamed about that yeah, I mean, well, I I've, I have a bit of a complicated answer. It won't sound complicated to many Black people, um, I'm sure. But so I would say it's a it, it is you know a perfect affirmation of why we need Black churches and why like um, Black churches or ethnic minority churches are somewhat necessary. Now, on the matter of white churches, I struggle a bit because we weren't allowed to participate in the white churches. Um, uh, and so it's, it's a, a I should say as well, just sorry to interject, but I should say as well for, for those listening in, in the UK, it's, it's been acknowledged more and more by church leaders. The same is exactly true in this country. There's a mm -hmm. lot of talk here about the Windrush generation who came over from the Caribbean and, and tragically were turned away from the established traditional dominations. And I think it's a really important point to make because as you say, it does answer this question of why do we have, it partially answers the question of why are there black majority churches in the UK in the first place? And at least a partial answer to that question is because they weren't welcome in the white majority spaces, which yeah. is something I learned relatively recently and was, was horrified by. And so it's it's something that is increasingly being acknowledged, but it's still not common knowledge. Yeah. And so when you trace that line and you um, account for all the ways that that people of color still feel unsafe, it's quite fair. I think God would have a lot of compassion on, you know, people who require a space where they can truly feel free and their experience and in their bodies and, um, and included and welcome. And I, I think there's, you know, yeah, God would feel a lot of, I hope, you know, 
I know, compassion for that. Now, I think white churches have to ask themselves a very different question. And it's not, you know, um, how can I cultivate a space that feels completely safe and, you know, and centers my experience. It's how do I resist a world you know, uh, uh, how do I resist um, um, a Saturday to, to, to Saturday life experience where a lot of the systems, the languages, the, the expectations, the culture, the cultural kind of the acceptable cultural behaviors have been grounded in a delight for and um, superiority around white bodies, white faces, you know? And so I think, you know, white, the white churches need to ask themselves of like, um, how do I put this? Like the, the better question for a white person, I would say, is to ask themselves, how do I belong to a spiritual space where I'm capable of being decentered and still feeling like um, a part of, and still feeling a sense of belonging? And I think that's that's that sadly there's a kind of poison almost a, a poison where, you know, um, many white people, not all, but many white people are unable to experience a sense of belonging unless the white experience is being centered. And so the question, all that to say, the question is probably answered in different ways to to meet the fact of well, who's excluded, you know, and 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 why do these um, yeah, why why does the black church exist? Why why is that necessary? The I don't think black people really need to answer that all that much. I think white people probably need to answer that and confess and become honest. But I don't know. It's a very complicated. Yeah. I don't want to come across like I have it all figured out because I think it's very complicated and I'm sure there's some blind spots even in what I'm saying now. But that's my that's my instinct. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting this this phrase you use of of. Um, centering your experience which I, I might have misunderstood but is, is it not true that everyone does that in the sense that b- because we are simple human beings we could be quite self-centered is, is it not true whatever your race or background you, you center your experiences in the sense that well this is the way I see the world it's, it's through my eyes I can't really see it through anyone else's and it's isn't the challenge that we have to race aside in general isn't isn't compassion about trying to see the world through someone else's eyes no matter what their background so is it not true that we all kind of see the world through a self-centered lens because that's just that's the way it is you know I've only got one set of eyes to see the world through Mm -hmm. you know I I wonder if that would have been the case had you know the transatlantic slave trade not happened for example because then you have a, a large popula- global population who has who has the the course of their human experience completely shifted in the fact that they now um, I mean this is human survival this is the problem of human survival they now can't afford to only view the world through their own lens you know um, and I you know I'm not trying to make this unnecessarily heavy but like if you think about an enslaved person in any part of the world they have to they have to account for what's happening in them but at all times because of the risk of death of abduction of of, um, alienation from the people they love violence brutal violence they have to constantly be examining what's happening in me but also what's happening in the body and mind of the white person who says they own me. 
and 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 that's what it that's what survival the, the, that's that was the necessary survival that's the way our brains have been rewired i think people who have had to constantly account for the experience of other people to try to anticipate if i do this you might do this to me that that kind of um dance that's always being played i think between the person who was enslaved and the person who enslaved them is how do i please you what do i you know there's this um and now that's the worst of it that's the that's this, you know, that's that's the worst of it, obviously. But I will say that there are people who have never learned to do that in um in a positive way, who have never had to have to be so aware of how another person is, you know, experiencing them because they there's no threat, you know, <laughs> there's no threat to their own survival. So, anyways, um all, all that to say, I wonder if it's probably partially all human experience to do that, that centering. But some of us, the speed at which we've had to unlearn that and learn empathy and intuition around other people and, and decentering has probably um, been, a, been a little bit faster, yeah. if that makes sense. I suppose it's this idea of kind of, well, it's a lot of, a lot of ideas, but collective trauma and and trauma being passed down through generations. And I, I think whenever you look at any event in world history, slavery foremost among them, uh, you can't help but look at that with of what it's resulted in, what it's led to. And, and there are others too. I mean, if we talk about generational trauma, again, you look at something like the Holocaust and you think that was tragic yes. for, for, for what happened then. But how, how could it not have devastating real-world consequences on, on subsequent generations? And I suppose even biblically, you know, there's, there's a lot in the Old Testament, isn't there, about generations and things being handed down and things carrying on from generation to generation and so these are heavy things but they need to be they need to be talked about i suppose and it leads me on to what i wanted to ask you about george floyd which is i've i've had to stop myself short a few times even in interviews with people where i've gone to say something like oh and after george floyd the world woke up to to racism of course what actually happened was white people caught up in the main with conversations that have been happening in amongst black communities for forever um, it's probably a fairer description of what happened there, but but there was there was a, a awakening, a reawakening amongst the more general population to yes. oh my goodness, there's this terrible terrible events that have been happening under our noses, and and it's taken some for some reason it took George Floyd. I'm not sure why. I'm sure that one will be debated for a long time, but why, why it was particularly that case, probably because it was caught on camera. That 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 then led to people, institutions, churches stopping, rethinking, even making promises, and and again these are huge issues. But I I did want to ask you. When we look at the church, are things getting better? Like I said, I'm not an optimist, but in some ways, <clears throat> in some ways, I feel like I have a little more access to an optimism, not necessarily, but I would say because of young people. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I, I understand I, I'm 32, so I'm quite young. People listening or, um, or who know my face are probably like, what does she mean? But I, I, I mean, you know, these people in their 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 early twenties, the the people that are of college age, kind of that 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 demographic that has known to be such a such a heartbeat for so many movements across history, so many protest movements across history, and and strategic and community building and community organization. I know who I was <laughs> when I was twenty one. And I know some of the 20 year olds I've interacted with in the past five years. And 
I think for all of the bad that social media has done, um, I could talk about that, but that's not what this is about. So to the listener know that I'm refraining, I'm restraining myself. But one thing it has done is it's, you know, for better or worse, given people and young people access to the terrors of the world, which on one level breaks my heart that, you know, and causes anxiety and all kinds of terrible things, but I'm talking about the positive here. So the, the, the one, uh, one of the positives in that is that you then have this awakening, this, um, this way, you know, I, I wasn't watching videos of cops kneeling on necks when, when I was, 10 years ago. I just, I just wasn't, I didn't have access to that information. And there's a way that I kind of shut off my brain and was like, it's all about your studies and whatever. Nowadays, I think these young people, they have seen and they have a a suspicion of, of authority that I think can be really helpful in terms of creating new structures. They, um, I mean, respect goes a long way, but also a a sense of, you know, okay, I'm not going to inherently trust you because you're an authority. I think always also goes a long way toward imagination and dreaming up new ways of being and new traditions and also excavating and trying to really cling to like, okay, were there some good traditions? Were there some good patterns that we had? All of that I see in young, younger people, people younger than me. So maybe I don't see so much, I, maybe I don't feel such a swell of optimism when I think about the church building, sadly, if I'm honest, I just, I don't see that. But when I think about the, the values and daily life of the church outside of the church building, I do feel somewhat of an optimism because I feel somewhat of an optimism toward the, the world in that way. Mm. Yeah. You uh, you held back from crit- uh, from criticizing social media, um, <laughs> which you don't have to. You don't have to because my next question brings us neatly onto it, which is you wrote a, an article for the Atlantic uh, recently, which I very much enjoyed. And I actually thought, why not? You know, for those who didn't get a chance to look it up, but I'll, I'll give us the first paragraph because the first paragraph is is brilliant, and it's very simply this: On February twenty third, I couldn't have located Ukraine on a map. On February 24th, it seemed I was expected to articulate my opinions on Vladimir Putin's invasion. As a writer, I have enough of a public platform that I received a number of direct messages demanding I write something about Ukraine. I didn't know how to tell them that I'd only just learned the political distinction between Kyiv and Kiev. I googled Russia-Ukraine conflict and how far does a nuclear bomb go? I knew I had nothing constructive to say. And aside from the uh, sheer brilliance of the writing, um, there's there's a really profound point in there that I think anyone with even the tiniest of public platforms can resonate with. And my public platform is minuscule compared to yours. But I've had exactly the same thing. I've had people tweet me saying, Sam, why aren't you speaking out about X, Y, Z? And it will be, I mean, it could be anything. It could be any issue. And all of the issues are important, right? You know, all of them are mm-hmm. important. But the idea that every person with any kind of public platform has to be shouting about what everyone else is shouting about has taken over. And you even hear phrases such as, um, I mean, one of the most common is silence is violence. This idea that if, if you don't speak, you're, you're, 
not only part of the problem, but you're committing some sort of terrible act by not tweeting or not sharing your view. And uh, I found it fascinating to read this. But, and I suppose because of all we've just spoken about and the importance of campaigning and writing books and talking about racism and difficult subjects, and I know you would affirm the importance of all of that because you've done it. And yet even for you, there's this understanding that, yeah, but we can't expect everyone to be doing all the talking all the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And, you know... I mean, I felt this so much. I, I didn't understand how like how strong that push was. And I came into my public platform really quickly. So I was just kind of thrown into it and, you know, oh, people want me to post about Myanmar. And I um, I didn't really know what to think. I'm like, what about my experience makes you think I'm going to have the same day, you know, thoughtful response to the invasion of Russia? Like, I just... I need some time. Um, and I think I don't, I, in that article, I, I, I asked the question of, I wonder about, you know, what happened in the wake of George Floyd's murder to kind of the demand that maybe increased. And all of a sudden, if you weren't speaking, you were a bad person. It, 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 you were just as bad as the person who pulled the trigger, so to speak. And I think that that's only increased and the, the accusations have only increased when the reality is when you know people like people like Audre Lorde um famous you know feminist icon and writer and poet like when people like Audre Lorde write in her in her her essay when she writes um your silence will not protect you and she talks about you know um so don't be silence she wasn't talking about social media and that's what we need to like remind ourselves. I almost wish I would have put that in the, the article of like, she wasn't these people, these kind of um, uh, people who have lived through tragedy. And, you know, I'm, I can't remember. There's also a, um, a Jewish woman who also has a comment, comment on silence or, or wrote about silence. And it's like, and all that to say, they, they weren't thinking about your Twitter post like, like what a delusion that I'm gonna, I think that, you know, they were, their, their Audre Lorde is, you know, menacing, like grimacing at me from the grave because I didn't tweet that day. Like, no, I think they were talking about a prolonged silence. And if, you know, the contents of your life are that you're silent on issues of human suffering, we have an issue, you know, we have a problem and, and you, you, you have to contend with that in, in yourself. But now uh, we've kind of shrunken our, our experience to this, like, this, this public theater, this social media theater that, you know, I'm a part of now. And it's, it's, yeah, I mean, theater is the best word I have for it, where we're expected to perform, to perform our, our pain, perform our opinions flawlessly and with great speed, <laughs> or else we, who, who are we, you know? Yes. Who are yeah. we really, really? And I think that's really sad and is just taking us t- to some really unfortunate places of where, where no one really trusts. Even if you say something, do people really trust that you think it now or are you just saying yeah. it? Because it's so, you know, it's, yeah, skepticism and accusation all around, I guess. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it.
Well, sadly, we're fast running out of time and we've covered covered so much. There's loads more I'd love to chat about. But um, bring us up to date with where you're at at the moment. Um, we haven't spoken much about, about COVID, but you, you mentioned some of the health health problems you've had. And I know the term we have in the UK for it is shielding, where we basically say those who are m- more vulnerable to the virus should restrict themselves even more, really. We're, we're not going out. I don't know what the term is in America or, or if you've been affected by that. But but how has how is COVID affecting you right now? Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, I have it. I've been living a very quiet life um, here in upstate New York. And apart from doctor's appointments, I just don't go uh, in, into public indoor places, essentially. I haven't been inside a Target. I don't, I assume you have Targets. In we Asia. don't, we don't, but I've been to America before and I love a good uh, Target. Okay. Um, so I, like... I know what you're talking about. For, for a British audience, just just think like a very, very large supermarket, um, almost more of a department store, I suppose. Yes. I haven't been in a Target or a grocery store since March of first month of the pandemic. I mean, I'm, I'm privileged enough that I have the things I need. I have access to the things I need, people, friends who can bring us things and you know, but it has been a little bit of a reworking of how I live my life. But I really do think I'm healthier now, um, mentally and physically, because the pandemic in many ways gave me permission to say no to things that I probably should have been saying no to long before the pandemic. But everyone just had this mutual pact of like, it's okay. And I've learned so much about myself in that and, and, and will carry, I mean, will carry this to, to my death, this kind of, you know, this, um, yeah, this fidelity to myself and to what my body needs and to what my introversion needs and what makes sense for me doesn't make sense for the next person. So I'm relearning all of these things and it hasn't been without difficulty. I, I miss Target, you know, but <laughs> you, you learn other ways of being so. And, and how, how does that affect community? Have you found, I mean, we're speaking right now on Zoom, have, have you found those sort of technological workarounds have, have solved that issue? Or, or is it more just as an introvert, you don't want to spend a lot of time talking to people anyway? You know, I feel like I'm not supposed to say the latter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it hasn't been all that difficult, probably because of my introversion, also social anxiety. So I'm in a bit of a um, weird place where I acknowledge that I, 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 I could acknowledge that I needed connection, but I didn't necessarily feel that or want that or desire that. And so, yeah, slowly I've found ways to, to stay connected. And I have a very small circle of, of friends. And so it's not difficult to connect, thankfully. And, and, um, I also have family and friends that, yeah, are, are lucky enough to be able to quarantine and to come and see us or for us to go and see them and they're able to quarantine because a lot of people um, here are still working from home and so it makes it easier for them to, yeah, to see me. So how does that affect church? Were you going to a kind of Sunday service in person before the pandemic and now presumably you're not? Is it, Again, is there a replacement for that or does that just have to look different now? Yeah, um, I was. So it's been strange. I haven't received the Eucharist since Easter of the first year of the pandemic when they brought it to our homes. <laughs> and so it's it's definitely strange and it, there's a sadness there. But um, yeah, I, I'm 
lucky they, they also do online services still. And so I've just been tuning in that way. And there's um, there's a community of, of black women actually led by this womanist scholar theologian that I just happened across on social media. And so I've been um, slowly making my, um, my way into that community of women that's kind of like a a church-like service that's less um, liturgical. 